welcome to a special Halloween episode of Lost in Science. We like to call it, what do we call it, Stu? We call it Lost in Science Fiction. Yes, just for, for one week, we take a break from giving you the best fact-based, evidence-based reality programming to bring you some a bit of a focus on what is going on in the imaginative worlds out there. Well, I mean, you know, it's 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 an interesting relationship between science and science fiction. I think they both kind of inspire and inform each other. And, you know, when there's new scientific breakthroughs, someone inevitably inevitably writes a script based on some new idea, completely gets it wrong usually, yeah. uh, and then makes millions of dollars or not out yeah. of out of that. But also, on on the flip side, I mean, you know, science fiction inspires designers and people to actually come up with new ideas of things that are real things that we use every day, like, you know, yeah, uh, well, smartphones and, and tablets and things like that are all, you know, originally from science fiction Yeah, and in ideas. the spirit of um, fact P programming, I'm going to say that the vast majority of scientists are fans of science fiction anyway, so it is entirely appropriate. We can't back that up in any way. But I think it's pretty likely. It is It is probably, probably quite likely. There's certainly a lot of inspiration to little kids and not so little kids to become scientists uh, based on their viewing habits, I guess. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, this um, for this year though, we are trying to do something normal, a bit different. Normally, we talk about um, the the uh, the errors and opposite of errors facts in that might appear in your local friendly science fiction shows. But this year, we're going to talk to some people involved in the science fiction, the the cultural, the um, the uh, what do we call it? The literary side, even not the not literary. The um, well, let's be specific. Um, first of all, we will be talking to Andrew Lynch from the University of Melbourne, who is a researcher on well on TV and science fiction TV and fandom. So uh, he has quite a bit to say about the current the current um, trend for um, science fiction and fantasy in high end television. And then later on, we will be talking to screenwriter Sarah Dollard, who has written for such obscure science fiction programs as Doctor Who. Uh, so that's uh, that's going to be get sort of straight from the the experts, the creator's mouth. That will be on the perspective of science in science fiction. I hope you stay with us and on with the program. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. You are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and today in the studio we have with us Andrew Lynch. Andrew is a doctoral candidate, lecturer, and course coordinator in the School of Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne. And his current research is on genre fandom and the so-called quality TV. Thanks for coming in, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Now, um, popularity, like genres like science fiction, uh, among other genres, popularity seems to go up and down in, in waves. It does. Would you say we are in a good time for science fiction at the moment? I think we're in a very good time. I think uh, 
producers of, I suppose, popular television, especially sort of your your high end, big budget, and critically acclaimed TV, have have worked out, I guess, a a new way to inject sort of sci fi elements that maybe would have been uh, possibly looked down upon in the past, and inject them into this kind of new, uh, supposedly, you know, second or third golden age of television production. Mm. I guess, I mean, one of the things that I've realised or noticed over the last few years is there's a lot of stories being told, which, may, you know, the, the the basis of the stories have been around for a while, but the actual special effects have made have become cheap enough that you can actually tell these stories with without, you know, spending a billion dollars on a, on a TV show or on a film. And you think that's sort of part of the reason that sci-fi has come back into vogue, I guess? Well, you can produce them now, you know, as as the popular narrative. Oh, you know, the director will say, "Oh, I've always wanted to tell this story, but I couldn't till now because the, you know, the actual, I suppose, science side of uh, visual effects wasn't up to it." But also, you, maybe you could have told those stories. They might just have looked a bit janky in the past and probably been relegated to, you know, your late night movie or, you know, uh, maybe B movie or B television kind of profile. I mean, you know, some of my favourite TV shows were late night only TV shows, <laughs> certainly Most in the 80s mine. and 90s. Yeah. So how does something then like uh, the new Star Trek series, that's Star Trek Discovery, fit into that? Because on the one hand, it is kind of updating the special effects and things, but it's, it is stuff that had, is it stuff that had been done before effectively? Are we just like tramping over old territory and, and remaking things for the sake of, of doing something because you have the budget now to get better special effects? Or is it adding something new, do you think? It seems like they're definitely trying to add something new, but I think that something new might be uh, bringing Star Trek and the whole sort of Trek fandom uh, into this kind of new era of, of prestige television. We're trying to mi- mix those elements in as, you know, as well loved certainly by myself and others uh, as Star Trek has been for the last however many decades. It's still been relegated to sort of the, uh, I suppose, maybe second tier of popularity, even though it you know obviously has made a lot of money uh, over the years. Um, I think this is an attempt to maybe bring some of the, you know, uh, quote-unquote true uh, Trek from television of years past uh, and, you know, bring it to contemporary big, big, you know, quality, so-called quality TV, um, maybe without uh, fully bringing the J.J. Abrams kind of blockbuster Trek, mm. which we already have and is already, you know, well-beloved. Uh, it's very, that's a very different style, isn't it? I mean, that is like much more your action-adventure kind of thing as opposed to, I think, the the TV series is still much more that feel like it feels more like science fiction that exploring ideas and strange new worlds. Yeah. I mean, as you know, as expensive as uh, Star Trek discovery is, it's, it's supposedly pretty close to something like game of Thrones in terms of uh, episode to episode budget. There's still only so much, you know, you can do, and it is kind of a, maybe a better space to tell those sort of story of the week, uh, you know, fiddly techno babble filled, uh, you know, stories of meeting, you know, strange new worlds and, interesting new civilizations mm. rather than a, you know, a big J.J. Abrams blockbuster in which there's got to be, you know, a fair degree of running, shooting, swashbuckling, swinging, jumping, flying, um, all things which uh, definitely work better, you know, on a big screen and a bigger budget. Lens flares, that kind of thing. Oh, but you I might you might have noticed that there's definitely a few lens flares yeah, popping right, up in this yeah. new, although the, the uh, deck of the Discovery, uh, the bridge, is certainly a l- whole lot darker than the sort of somewhat maligned, uh, Apple Store looking bridge of J.J. Uh, Abrams. I noticed they go to black alert. And I always think, how do they switch on the black lights? It just seems like it'll make it really hard to see when at a time when I imagine you'd be stressed and running around. Yeah, yeah. And you've probably got to have those sort of, you know, the, the right colours 
to to stand out in the black alert lights. Quite possibly, yeah, yeah like the black lighting, yeah, yeah, yeah. So are the changes then uh, to uh, to update a series like Star Trek for for the modern era is that in things like the the technology that you see on screen, so the actual kind of it could be more line the developments now. Is it in terms of more the storytelling and the show structure? You think? Well, there's certainly a fair amount to be said in how uh, non-Trek it feels in terms of how serialized it is. As much as uh, earlier seasons of Trek, like Deep Space Nine uh, and Voyager, brought in sort of degrees of serialization, sort of typical of of television of the '90s and and the noughties. Um, this one definitely feels like an update. I would I would argue primarily based on its aesthetics. It it looks and feels like a you know two thousand show. It's certainly gritty and violent. We even got a, a dropped f bomb, uh, I believe, in yes, last week's yeah. episode, in which the crew seemed to be giggling as if they'd never heard that kind of word before. Which I'd argue the you know members of Starfleet probably haven't. Um, well, it, it is interesting. Someone pointed out to me the other day that there was in in an earlier version of Star Trek, I mean, Star Trek Discovery is set at the same basic time as about the original series. So they're kind of around about the same time. But there was a there was a Star Trek film with Kirk and the original crew who went back to Earth and they were confused and shocked at the way people swore at them and Kirk famously tried to swear at someone and called him said double dumbass on you and that was the worst swear he could come up with. Um so it's like it is it is a bit strange that someone is swearing in, in in Starfleet, and whereas the actual original crew of the Enterprise didn't know what swearing was, really. Well, this definitely, I think the uh, the Discovery and its you know roguish Captain Lorca definitely seem like the sort of bad boys of the Trekverse. So I'd imagine there'd be a few expletives thrown around uh, on the decks of that ship that you might not find on your more you know PG thirteen uh, Enterprise, which I presumably is also flying around. At about this time, given the somewhere, that's, that's yeah, thing. somewhere else, <laughs> yeah. the lighter the lighter part of the universe. Yeah, I think if they're they're willing to forego things like the Geneva Convention, they'll probably also forego things like uh, yeah, language conventions, that sort of stuff. Um, well, the science involved, uh, the science involved is kind of does feel like they've got some updated technology and updated sort of concepts, but it is still it's still outlandish. It's still not real science. And a good example, I think, um, this is like I suppose we should have given a spoiler warning. At yeah, the yeah. If, if if you are worried about spoilers for the new Discovery series, maybe. Um, Go and make a cup of tea or something. Yeah. Just avoid avoid listening for a little while. Wait till everyone leaves the room. Yeah, so they have this um they have this new star starship drive driven by some sort of they call it the mycelial network. It's basically a subspace fungus, uh, which then they navigate using a large scale tardigrade, also known as the water bear. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous stuff. But I mean, I guess it's um it's it's trying to update with new scientific discoveries or new scientific obsessions, really, isn't it? Well, it seems like, and they've actually made quite a quite a something um they've made uh, quite a bit of hay around especially uh naming or sort of bringing in uh the sort of real life science and supposedly real life scientists behind uh new discoveries of fungus um the discoverer of this of the so-called spore drive uh is explicitly named after a, a real life scientist right. who also called in in a quite wonderful but slightly awkward kind of skype conversation to the the live after show uh, which is aired on uh, Netflix and CBS On Demand in the States. Yeah, I don't know if people are aware of this, but there is, um, as you said, an after show. It's called After Trek. If you are watching this um, this series online, you can look up After Trek as well. Is that sort of part of the new phenomenon of fan culture to have something like that? As I mean, the, the episodes of this after show are at the same length as an actual episode of the real show, so it just seems to me like it's kind of overkill in that sense. 
I think for, for some viewers it might feel like overkill, uh, but it's certainly trying to tap in, I think both at the same time to that, you know, classic, you know, Trekkie or Trekker, depending upon your, your preferred uh, version, but also bringing in that kind of fan knowledge or fan engagement and trying to sort of mainstream that in a sense. Literally all you have to do uh, is not turn off your television or not, you know, press go on the next episode and you get all this sort of behind the scenes information that would have been, you would imagine coming up on something like a DVD extra in the past. Yeah. But now in a streaming thing is, you know, right on your television screen. I guess it was a live thing and I suppose the original concept was trying to put Twitter up on up on the, the screen and so it doesn't quite work when you're watching the taped version of it because you're not part of the conversation then. Yes, the, the hashtags feel a little bit uh, less relevant when there's a, you know, this has been previously recorded before the episode starts. Yeah, if you watch it a week later, it's a bit... Uh... A bit dry, but that, this is this is across the board. Though. I mean, Doctor Who's had a you know an after show on the BBC for years but since they relaunched. It. Oh, absolutely, thing, yeah. and but there, there's other shows like um, Game of Thrones. There was an after show on Game of Thrones produced in the UK, True. which had what actually had you know cast members from the show talking about their part in it and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So I think it's sort of a bit broader than just. Trek. It is like. actually, and and speaking of Doctor Who, our, our next guest Sarah Dollard has, I believe, appeared on an episode of the Whovians, which was the Australian after show of for Doctor Who. So yeah, that is that is more like the I suppose this after Trek version, but still I think shorter than it. Oh look, changing changing gears slightly here, I do want to mention another sort of form of science fiction that might be out there because the other big phenomenon, blockbuster phenomenon in the world today is Marvel TVs and movies. Does that count as science fiction? Do you think? Oh, uh, it's just got sci-fi elements in a fantasy framework what is that well i think you've got to be really nitpicky if you're going to be calling that you know not sci-fi at least by any by any reasonable um, understanding of the genre but you know superheroes and sci-fi are genres that have often been kind of combined or hybridized yep. over the decades and decades that they've existed they really with fit the marvel well. heroes i believe oh absolutely yeah, yeah. well a lot of the a lot of the marvel storyline is is based on well if if you look at the comic book certainly is is based on genetic mutation the x-men is the probably the most famous oh, example or nuclear nuclear things like with the hulk uh, it's, it's all 50s sci-fi concerns or 60s sci-fi well, scientific concerns, discovery yeah. iron man making you know out of the True. you know what little he can find in a i think an afghan cave he manages to make this amazing super suit yeah. that saves his life and allows him to become the iron man yeah. i think there, there there's there's a couple of things i mean you know the the doctor strange sort of side of things is is a little bit far removed from sci-fi i think but it's still trying to play with the idea then of parallel worlds which is sort of a yeah true and i mean even in even in ant-man which is i guess it's pretty sci-fi a shrinking growing suit that that can actually you know i i, I think the, the concept is that you can uh, there's a lot of space between the, the parts that make up an atom and you can shrink things down into that space or something like that but uh, those who can't hear, I am shaking my head. Yeah, <laughs> as a, as a physicist, I know that you were you were quite you were quite bemused so, so by the whole Ant Man. Yeah, they had this basically thing. Oh well, you know, when he he somehow retains his original mass, so he can punch really hard. And they do this thing when he first shrinks down that he falls through the floor because he's still so heavy. But then he lands on a record player, and the record doesn't even like skip. Um, and, and and also, spoiler alert! But later in the film, someone pulls a tank out of their pocket. Well, I think which that, they'd been carrying around in their pocket and. Blow Blows it up because it's actually a full-size tank. And it's like, you can't walk around with a tank in your pocket. It doesn't also, matter how small it is. If you have the weight of a human shrunk down to the size of an ant, I don't think you can jump on the back of an ant and it'll still fly. No. No, definitely not. No. Anyway, no. I think we've got a little, off, uh, <laughs> a little obsessed. Well, there. all this comes nicely into the idea of believability, right? Or, or, yeah. a, or a sense of realism. I mean, ultimately, 
even your you know hardest of hardcore uh, science fiction is, is ultimately fantastical in some way. It might be yep. building upon ideas from real life science, but it's always using that as sort of a way to talk about almost always a way to talk about something else or you know making a world seem believable, right? Yeah. And I think that's definitely the case with the the MCU more broadly. The sort of science based uh, justifications or flavor sort of comes into play to make this world seems like it has a set of understandable rules. They might not be our mm-hmm. rules, the rules we understand, uh, but they are but they are maintained across supposedly this you know interconnected network of uh, films and television shows. Well, I guess that really brings us back to the whole Star Trek thing because that has, as discussed, the science in there is kind of outlandish, but it's uh, it tried. They try to make it consistent, and as a result of that, people who watch that grow up to be scientists and then work on those real things. They work on real teleporters and real, I don't know, elevators. I don't know. What F- else phaser beams phaser and, and, and tricorders, f- flip stuff. phones. Yeah. Oh, when you know. we get a turbo lift, I'm going to be so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be worth noting as well in the uh, you know after Trek program you mentioned before. There are little segments. Uh, interstitial segments, one of which lets you know, in case you didn't already know, that Star Trek has been responsible for uh, a bunch of different real-life scientific uh, advancements, including such things as uh, iTunes and uh, EarPods as well. Wow. Amongst more. This, so there's definitely this idea that uh, New Trek wants to let you know just how important Old Trek was to the, to the world in which we find ourselves now. Right. Well, look... Um... Star Trek and all science fiction is very important to my world. I will say that at least. And I think to, to Stu's as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, uh, Andrew, for coming in and telling us all about uh, science fiction. Um, and yeah, um, we'll beam you back up, I guess. Engage. Okay, yes, welcome back to Lost in Science. Now, former Melbourneian Sarah Dollard is uh, is currently in the UK where she has written for TV shows like uh, Doctor Who, uh, Being Human, and um, she's been scripted on a number of other shows, including science fiction show Primeval, which is a few years back. Um, and we are lucky to have her on the line with us now. Sarah, welcome to Lost in Science. Hello. Hello. Hi, guys. I, I, I do book at former Melbourneian. I'm an, an always Melbourneian in my heart. This, well, you know, the, the accent is certainly... I don't know if I can, I can picture any sort of Melbourne kind of hipster kind of thing going on there. Oh, there's a lot of fake accents running around Melbourne now too, so it's hard to tell. Yeah, yeah everybody's, everybody's got that hipster accent going on. I think I missed that. I got out in time. <laughs> well, you have to cultivate it, otherwise you won't fit in with people like us. Exactly. <laughs> now, what... <laughs> What is it to, um, yeah, I'll jump right in. What is it to have the, um, the, yeah. the privilege to write for such a loved series like Doctor Who? Oh, I mean, it, it's such a head spin that 
even when you sort of say that now, a little part of me is sort of giggling, <laughs> like it's not quite real, even though it's sort of been three years now, um, more than that, that I've been sort of associated with the show, it still feels like such a dream that uh, it doesn't quite feel real. So I absolutely recognise that privilege and do definitely feel it. Were so- you always a fan? Yeah, well, I mean, as you guys probably will know, it was on every day, every mm. weekday in Australia. So I'd come home from school and, you know, you'd watch some Ocean Girl and, or, you know, some Australian shows and then you'd, then there'd be this like bizarre kind of unsettling British show um, that it was just kind of part of the wallpaper. Um, certainly when I was growing up anyway, was it like that for you guys? Oh yeah, absolutely. It was it's something I was going to ask you is because it has been running for so long. I mean, it's a 50-year history of Doctor Who, uh, more yeah. than 50 years now. How much how much of what you absorbed as a kid did you sort of bring back when you were writing for the show or did they just sort of tell you, "Hey, just forget everything you knew and just write whatever you like?" Um, I have to say that from when I watched it as a kid, I wasn't watching it as an anorak who was like, you know, hoovering up all of those facts and all of the sort of the ins and outs of canon. I was watching it just like with a sense of wonder. So I absolutely brought that sense of wonder and wanted to create that kind of, you know, walking that that line between kind of warmth and coziness of and, you know, fear and fear of the unknown and uncertainty that that, that Dot 2 always gave to me and to my little brother who was so terrified of it. I used to have to kind of entertain him to keep him quiet while the, while the show was on. <laughs> it's, um, I guess it's a, a fan taking over a, um, sort of any role on a show like that. It must be, I guess, a responsibility to, to shepherd it in and continue yeah. that, as you said. And you, um, I mean, you've done some significant things. As the writer of Face the Raven, you killed off Clara Oswald. Um, yeah. Oh, I definitely, definitely knew what a huge responsibility that was. Not, not just because, you know, she was so beloved by the audience, but because she was beloved by me. Um, and I wanted to, as soon as it was sort of brought up in conversation that she might be, um, she might be killed. Like I was sort of told, well, look, we're, we're thinking of doing this. We're not sure yet, but if it does happen, it'll probably happen in your episode. And I sort of went, you know, in the period of like sort of two seconds in my head from, oh, my God, no, they can't kill Clara to, well, you know, if it's going to happen, then I have to be the one to do it because I have to make sure it's done right. <laughs> I have to look after her. Um, as, so... as, as far as that goes, how much how much direction do you get? Do they... Do they say, well, you've got to end at this point and they give you a finishing point and you can write the the lead up to it or do they sort of just give you yeah. free reign most of the time? Um, usually you get told a finishing point. In my case, I already had a script, um, a beginning and middle of an end of Trap Street um, and a story about Riggsy and a story about Clara and a story about uh, those, that mother and daughter uh, alien family that were on the street. And so when they sort of brought me in for a chat it was um so they asked me to make sure well they, they asked me to insert the Maisie Williams character so my kind of antagonist of the episode would come out and she would go in um me would go in and and then they brought up the Clara thing so it was a case of 
there was in just in our discussion, it was, well, if you if it's going to be me instead of the character that you already had in the antagonist role, maybe it could go like this. And I went, oh, yeah, no, I, I know what I'm going to do. I think I, I've got an idea there. And they are, they're really good. They sort of trust you to, to go away and play with it and then bring them back something to, to have an opinion on. It's an interesting thing because it is some, a story where it was Clara's own actions and um, place in her in her journey that that basically caused her death. Well, that and the um, the quantum shade, I guess. Mm. What is a quantum shade, by the way? Yeah, so there was a much more of an explanation in the episode about what a quantum shade was, and it's just one of those things that gets cut um, because um, there's so much going on in that episode. Um, anything that's not absolutely vital for um, doesn't it, it, not absolutely vital for the story gets to gets cut, you know, gets um, shaved off the edges um, really early. So a quantum shade is an alien. It's okay. not a thing. It's not an, it's not an ah. object. It's not a tool. It's actually a creature. Um, and it's a creature that um, sort of feeds on other on the, the existence, um, the, the life of, of other beings. Um, it's a creature that's uh, a chameleon. So on wherever it goes, it appears in a form that will fit in, in its environment. So on Earth, it appears as a bird, as a raven, as a crow. Is it raven? As a raven. Uh, face the crow. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> doesn't have quite the same ring to it. Um, yeah, and so in effect, it's sort of a bounty hunter. You make a deal with it. And okay. when, you, when you make a deal with it, it will get a life. It doesn't. It, it might be the life that you you want it to get, or if you make that exchange, it's the second life. But it's one life, and it will get that. So you don't mess with the quantum shade with a quantum shade, and unless you're absolutely sure that you want someone's life to be taken. Now that's really interesting because it's um like it's something that's dressed up in science sounding language, but it's actually it's a very uh, I guess um mythological kind of yeah creature that yeah it doesn't rely on the science is is science important in these things or is this science just kind of a just that kind of thing a supplier of words and it's really the the imagination and the fantasy that that drives things i would say that well as you know some episodes of doctor who um lean more into the science science fiction and some lean more into the into fantasy um and you know part of the beauty of doctor who is that that it's not the same every week, that it um, it does sort of have a different flavour. Um, I feel like there needs to be, if not science at the heart of every um, story, then a kind of truthiness to kind of borrow that horrible, like, Colbert word about politics. Um, there has to be something that instinctively feels real, as okay. in, like, it, yeah, that... The, the the basis of this, the scaffolding of this, is something that is familiar from our world, is familiar from reality, and then leaps off into imagination. I guess another good example of that is the um, in the other episode that you've written, the um, Thin Ice, which is the one set in the the Frost Fair in nineteenth mm. century London, with um, a giant monster underneath the Thames. Again, we gave a spoiler warning at the start of this whole sh episode, but. Uh, they, those monsters seem to be um, based on like deep sea creatures, real deep sea creatures. Was that deliberate choice? Yeah, definitely. Um, it was. I'm really fascinated by the fact that there's so many, so many creatures on our planet that that 
remain undiscovered, or we assume as much because we keep on discovering new ones in the, the depths of the oceans. Um, and so by, by basing it vaguely on creatures that actually exist in our world, I wasn't necessarily saying this is a terrestrial creature. Um, again, this is a whole conversation that was in the episode and, uh, and got cut for time, uh, and also got cut because you don't want to pause the story for exposition. Um, or supposition in this case, because the doctor was sort of saying, well, yeah, it looks a little bit like like real creatures, real terrestrial creatures on Earth, but how do you know that the, those creatures that you call terrestrial ah. were always terrestrial? Like the um, bees. <laughs> uh, yes, like the bees. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. so, yeah, that, that is a case of... Uh, being fascinated by something that that is real um, is scientific, and then then running with it, taking it in your teeth and and jumping overboard. Right, it's always aliens, though, isn't it? Pretty much. <laughs> it's always the butler, and it's always aliens. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I, I do find that a bit. It's kind of weird because I, I read up on the history of Doctor Who when when the Doctor turned fifty and. The, the actual reason that the BBC started making Doctor Who was because they had this massive wardrobe department with all these <laughs> different eras of, of clothing for costume dramas. And they went, how are we going to use all this stuff? I've got a, a time-travelling guy who goes from one era to another. So it didn't even start off very sci-fi. I mean, the Daleks are quite early on, which was a bit of a, bit of a sci-fi, you know, icon. But... Yeah, a lot of stuff, you know, he, he met Marco Polo and he would go back into medieval times and all these sorts of things. And it was it was literally so they could use their old costumes up and, you know, get their money's worth out of them. And I guess <clears throat> certainly when I was watching it in the 70s, they went full on sci-fi, I think. They, you know, they, even though I think the Doctor was trapped on Earth in the 70s, but they went full on sci-fi, giant the third robots. Doctor, and John Pertwee. The third Doctor mm. and the the fourth Doctor, Tom, ba Tom Baker, was my Doctor. I've had he wasn't trapped on Earth though. Not always, but he he was there for a while. He'd certainly worked with Unit a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was cheaper to make yeah. those episodes, I bet. But that was after yeah. that was after he had already regained the ability to travel his take his heart off Earth. Yes, I just want to point that out there. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. it, it is it is interesting that I was just going to say that they still do go back and they they love a good you know Victorian London episode. They seem to throw one of them in every couple of seasons on the on the new Doctor Who as well. Oh, I'm hoping we'll see Madame Vasta yeah. again soon. I really hope so. Um, who knows? You know, with um, you know, like the new regime, it's you never know what's going to be brought back from previous uh, showrunners. But I love Madame Vasta and Jenny, mm. um, and I always I always dreamed that there would be a spin-off. But I think partly because that whole Victorian Victoriana thing has sort of been. Perhaps people think it's sort of been overdone a little bit, not not just on Doctor Who, but like in general on British TV. Mm. I think that maybe that counted against um, poor old Vastra and Jenny in terms of potential spin-off. And Matt Smith looked um, particularly good in a top hat and everything, but I don't know if it you know, does <laughs> carry it off as well. <gasps> How dare you? Wow. <laughs> Peter Capaldi looks amazing in a hat. <laughs> Yes. Well, um, okay, so I want to ask you about another TV series that you have worked on, which I mentioned at briefly, Primeval, um, which is a show about, I guess, time travel again, involving various prehistoric creatures. Was that one where there was more scientific accuracy because it was more science-based, or was it, again, just kind of a jumping-off point? Definitely sci um, scientific basis in terms of 
the dinosaurs, mm. uh, very little in terms of wormholes, uh, yeah, okay. et cetera. Um, so uh, the executive producer on that show, uh, Tim Haynes, uh, is a real uh, a real nerd about dinosaurs, really knowledgeable. Um, he was the one who made Walking with Dinosaurs. Um, ah, yes. That yeah. was sort of cutting edge um, in terms of um, working with CG in in real surroundings. And that came from his passion and knowledge about dinosaurs. And so when it came to um, planning episodes, we'd know, before we'd know anything else about the story, for each episode, we'd know which creature or creatures we would be meeting. And he would give you all the information to kind of read and absorb about that creature. And, you know, I'm, um, I'm not someone who like is amazing at like keeping lots of facts and figures in their head. I'm much more of a daydreamer, but so he would sort of tell me things and go, did you know this? And, um, that was always a lot of fun things like, you know, the, the, this dinosaur was not around on earth at the same time as this dinosaur. And in fact, the period of time between this dinosaur and that dinosaur is actually longer than the period of time between these dinosaurs and when humans showed up. Mm. Um, so he, he, he enjoyed kind of breaking my brain with things like that. Well, I guess as long as you've got someone to, uh, to keep you up with those things and you can't really go wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you've got to, in any show, whether it's science fiction or, or otherwise, um, having researchers or fact checkers um, is invaluable. Um, and not just because you want to get things right, but obviously you do, but because um, learning things that that um, I do have a basis in fact can be really surprising and can tip your imagination off in a, a really unexpected and helpful way. Mm. And I guess you've, you've worked on a, quite a few other series of, of, I suppose, different genres, including historical ones, um, which again have a similar um, requirement for accuracy, I suppose. Yeah, yes. That's where that's where research comes in, and I really enjoy that aspect Brilliant. of it. So, what um what else are you working on at the moment? What other kind of shows can we look forward to to seeing your your byline on? Um, at the moment, I'm doing an episode um on a discovery of witches, um, which is an adaptation of the series of very popular books um by Deborah Hotness. That is fantasy, um that is witches and vampires and demons, but interestingly has um within the mythology of that show, it does have, um, you know, quite a scientific bent because obviously it's fantasy in terms of uh, witches and vampires, etc. But within that, there's a lot of attention paid to the, the, the science of their world. Um, um, on, the rules? Um, geni- sort of- the rules, but it's about genealogy and it's about evolution um, and it's about... Um, uh, yeah, the, the biology of these different creatures and how they interact. So, um, like two of the two of the characters, are, main characters, are scientists within that world. Um, so, you know, the, the the all of the kind of research into that has is truthiness. You know, like there is that's based in in reality in the way that they talk about it. Great. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. Anything else? You and want then, to yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm working on a bunch of my own things. Um, so, yeah, developing something with BBC and something with Channel 4. And um, not all of it is genre, but that is what I love to do. Um, one of them, um, one of the things I'm working on 
it's an original thing, is a sort of horror fantasy. Um, so, yeah, I really hope that goes places. That's one of my favourites. Brilliant. Well, good luck with that. And um, we'll certainly be watching it for more of your work. We'll very much enjoy it whenever it comes on. Oh, thank you. Good to chat to you. Fantastic. And, um, yeah, and hopefully we'll... Um, a few more people here in Australia will recognise you now when they see you when they see you on the shows. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Chris. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks for you. joining us. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook. Uh, and if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost in science. CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.